Welcome to Double Take, where we explore the art and science of making good decisions. I'm Matt. And I'm Anshul. Today's question, Anshul, is actually a request from a listener thinking about their career. They asked me, should I specialize or generalize? I love this one. This is a, I mean, first of all, I love that we're, we're getting listener requests already. But also, secondly, yeah, I, I get asked by people all the time, if, you know, should I learn how to code? Should I, you know, go be a consultant? I've got two sisters, one, one in university, one in high school, trying to figure out what they should do. Super, super common question. Yeah, very common. And th- this one in particular came from a friend of mine who, I mean, I think they're pretty generalist already. They're ex-consultants. They've done a lot of things. But in recent years, they've been working in fintech. They've co-founded a, like a payments company. They've gotten pretty far. And they're thinking now, well, you know, still fairly young. Should I double down and stay in financial services? Or is it time now to spread my wings, try something different, learn more skills? And they're really not sure. So for them, this question is really relevant and they've they been pushing me to to put this on the agenda so mm. the the fintech thing touches on a really interesting point too in that you know you can optimize for skill level specialization domain level specialization you know i, I could go become a salesperson but in theory i could probably move around between fintech SaaS, you know retail and probably be fairly good at all of them but then there's also industries and even within companies i think you know Somebody could spend 20 years in a giant corporate and just get really, really good at playing that one particular corporate's internal game and politics. Yeah, there, there are many ways you can think about this. It's, it's really a pretty difficult question as soon as you start peeling back the layers. Um, maybe to start, I would love to just hear your, your general thoughts. Like how, do you, how do you think about it for yourself? Well, I, I think we've both had maybe pretty similar kind of career journeys. Like I spent the first half of my life wanting to be a pretty hardcore specialist. Actually, when I, on the very, very first day of school, I still remember this vividly because I, I didn't want to go to school, but they, they got us to sit down and draw what we wanted to be when we grew up. And somewhere at my parents' house, there's still like a little drawing somewhere of me wanting to be a computer man, just like a little stick figure sitting in front of a poorly drawn computer. And so it's probably a bit of an exception, but I knew from a very young age what I wanted to do and be. And I kind of went off and did that and specialized, if you will, in you know, programming and software engineering. Until I didn't, I guess, and these days I'm pretty generalist and probably more commercial and, and don't write anywhere near as much code as I'd probably like to. Yeah, one of those rare people who lives out there, like six-year-old person's dream, not a, not a fireman or a policeman, <laughs> but a software engineer. Yeah, man, you made it. You, I guess you are still sort of a computer man now with the, the businesses you work in because you work with people who are doing that sort of work. So you're not directly involved, but you're, you're still, you still need to know that knowledge, so... It feels like you're just not stuck in the weeds of actually coding things yourself as much these days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's almost the best of both worlds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, my, my, my story is actually really similar, to be honest. When I was a toddler, I kind of stumbled onto the fact that I was good at maths and science and I really enjoyed it. In primary school, they used to give me math problem sheets from higher grades. And eventually I realized not, not just maths, but I really liked physics as well. And even made the quiet commitment to myself that I wanted to be like a Nobel Prize winning physicist or the best theoretical physicist in the world. And I really focused super hard. And in some ways, I guess I was like on track. I was winning awards, getting scholarships to universities. But eventually when I hit the PhD stage, things start to feel extremely, extremely narrow. To be honest, very unfulfilling. And at the same time, I'd been discussing like startup idea with a, with a friend of mine and eventually made the call to defer the PhD and give startup land a crack. And I've never looked back. It's, it's definitely been a, a complete sort of 
180 in how I think about the specialist generalist approach to life. Yeah. Yeah. That, it's almost identical to mine in university. Basically, we've, I, I used to freelance as a programmer and now it's part of the work. And one of the clients I had ended up raising some money and brought me in as CTO. And after that stint where I just spent a lot of time writing code, I was like, I, you know, how I've got to get out of the weeds here. I'd, rather, I'd much rather hire engineers and decide what to build. And it's been a bit of a blessing and a curse, I guess, because I, I still love programming. Uh, the problems are really constrained. You get into a very deep flow. It's very enjoyable. But now I just feel super guilty if I if I have a program for too long because I, I know I could be doing something more productive elsewhere. Yeah, some people feel guilty about eating cupcakes and watching TV and you feel guilty about programming. <laughs> says, says, says something about us for sure. <laughs> I wonder if this context... If this question actually exists outside the context of just career, like you've talked about, you know, potentially being on the path to become a physicist, I've talked about, you know, maybe becoming an engineer, curious if you think this specialist generalist question exists elsewhere. Yeah, I definitely think it does. I mean, even in my case with the PhD, I never really thought about this as a career in the normal sense. Like it was just who I was. It was what I was interested in. It was what I was doing. And I think that plenty of people in a similar boat, I mean, what comes to mind for me are uh, people in like artistic fields, you know, artists, musicians, or even sports people. I think a lot of these people are following a passion area and they end up specializing really, really hard. And I guess you can think of it as a, as a career thing, but I think in general, you know, it, it applies to lots of different domains of life, anywhere where you're choosing to allocate your time in a particular way. I mean, it's a really big question. I think there are a lot of things a person could be solving for when, when deciding whether to specialize or generalize. And it's, it's potentially too big a question to answer just in abstract. I think you potentially have to be a bit more specific about where we're starting and what we're solving for in this case. Yeah, 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 I agree. I think, I mean, 90% of where I've run into this, I've spoken to people about it, it has been in the context of career. And so I think it probably makes sense to constrain the question here to say we're optimizing for career success and the measurement you'd probably put on that is what your ability to earn. And I know there's, you know, there's all these other dimensions, like how much you love your job and, you know, do, do you enjoy your life day to day? Is it meaningful, fulfilling? But I think for the sake of simplicity, if we're thinking about where most people are considering the specialist versus generalist question, I, I'd say it's, you know, can I earn more by, you know, going down a particular path? Yeah, I, th I think that's right. I mean, there are, there are some exceptions here, obviously, like, you know, you could be optimizing for personal satisfaction, a particular passion area that you care about. Some people choose to optimize for the impact that they have on the world and so on. But I, th I think you're right. In most cases, the really sort of salient thing that people are thinking about is their career and sort of like their, their future earning potential and those sorts of things. And constraining to that area makes makes a ton of sense. And I think it makes this problem a lot more manageable, honestly, to deal with. Yeah. So let's let's assume that that's what we're doing. How, how then do we how how then do we approach this problem? What are your thoughts here? So I think there's probably a couple of key lenses to take a look at this one. So the first one, I think, I, I think broadly, the decision between specialization and generalization is a risk reward one. So if you become a specialist, and a specialist could be, you know, you're the best Nobel Prize winning physicist in the world. You're a you know, top 1% athlete in the NBA, you're a, you know, award-winning musician like Taylor Swift. It could be any one of those, but competition is harder, right? Because you have to be really, really, really good at one particular narrow set of tasks and you're competing on a small surface area with a lot of people 
to be at the very, very top. And so risk reward, you know, if you make it, great reward, but also, you know, great risk in that the vast majority of people don't make it. Then separately, there's also a risk reward trade-off around the fact that, you know, for lack of a better word, I think specialist skills are kind of fragile. And that means you're really good at a few tasks, but being good at a few tasks isn't a particularly robust or you know, anti-fragile, if you want to use the, the missing to lead phrasing, a way to operate in a world that's constantly changing, right? You know, we've, we've had large language models come out recently, AI is advancing. If you're a copywriter, if you're a graphic designer, it doesn't matter if you're in the top 1% five years ago, uh, very quickly, nobody's going to care how good you are just because you're going to get automated. And so I think having a very narrow set of things, which you're good at, exposes you to more risk. And so I think if those two things are true, then to answer the specialist versus generalist question, you kind of have to think about one, which knowledge and skills are high leverage and how do I identify them? And high leverage being that you know, they're applicable in a lot of contexts and learning them you know, gives me a disproportionate reward in terms of earning output. Then you've got to figure out how deep should I go? How do I know when it's time to move on? Like how good do I need to get at each of these skills? It's definitely possible to you know, become a specialist at what might be considered a generalist skill. And that's not necessarily an optimal strategy either. And then finally, once you're armed with you know, your set of knowledge and skills, how do you go off and, and use it? Yeah, I think it's a pretty good framing. This, like In general, when people are making decisions about what to do with their time and energy, I think the risk-reward lens is very often the right one. And those, those points you made, I think that they resonate. You know, competition, I think, generally is harder as a specialist. You know, there will be some exceptions and we, we should get into it. But I think you're right. Generally, to, to really win as a specialist, you do need to be the best of the best. And that's pretty hard. And then the specialist skills, I mean, it's almost, it's not really arguable that it's more fragile. You know, the, the future is uncertain if things can change and you're over-optimized to a specific set of skills or knowledge, you are less adaptable. Again, I think that there might be some exceptions. You know, it, there are times where it still makes sense to take a more fragile approach because the the upside can be very, very high, you know, high enough to compensate. And maybe we can touch on some topics from sort of modern portfolio theory and investments in that domain. But I, I think that's right. And so let's let's dig into those points. And, and if we're comfortable with it at, at the other end, then I think let's move on to if that's true, you're right. What what skills do we do we invest in building as a as a generalist or some or somewhat of a specialist? So, getting to the first point, I mean, we said that you know you have to be potentially in the top one percent to really really make it as a specialist. I actually think it could be even worse in in many cases. I mean, if you just just like pick a field, for example, let's say being an artist, I think thousands and thousands of people are trying their hand at art, music, so on. But I mean, how many successful artists or musicians can you name? I mean, maybe musicians a bit more, but in general, it's not very many. And I think given the volume of people who are attempting to make careers out of these things, I think we're looking at more like 0.1% who really make it even less. It's, it's an extremely difficult thing to do in many, many areas. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The, the, the stereotype of the starving artist is, is not without some truth behind it. Yeah, I, I don't know what the actual fraction is, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's 0.1% or potentially even even a lot smaller. Yeah, extremely difficult, but huge upside if you do make it. You know what? I, I always found it interesting that if you do take this lens of 
you know, financial success, even though you have that risk reward dynamic in being the specialist, it's actually still the generalists who tend to win when it comes to earning output, right? The, the most successful people financially in the world are all business people. And they're, they're definitely generalists, right? They, if you pick any top CEO, they're not good at, you know, one specific skill. They might be top 10% at, you know, leadership strategy, having knowledge and networks in a particular industry. And it's that confluence of top 10% skills, knowledge, networks that makes them really good, makes them top 0.0001% for a very, very particular job, which allows them to win these outsized returns. Yeah, I actually did a bit of a fact check on this because I thought maybe my mental model here is wrong. Let me actually just do sort of a random spot check of the top 10 most wealthy people in the world. I'm not sure if this is completely the the most up-to-date list now. This changes quite often. But you're totally right. All of them were basically CEOs, very generalist. We had CEO of LVMH. We had Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and and several others. I mean, a lot of these guys started off as specialists in a particular area, like, you know, Bill Gates, great example, started off as a specialist, I guess, in a more like software engineering or product development context. But all of these people are extreme generalists now. They are running huge companies, leading people, doing many, many different interesting things. And, you know, it's, it's, this is not sort of like a, a randomized control trial, but it's, it's certainly a strong data point if the top 10 are all in that generalist category. However, one thing that does come to mind when I look at it is, you know, are we, are we making the right cut here between, you know, distinguishing specialists and generalists? Because one, one thing we could say is that a CEO is a generalist. Another thing we could say is that these people are sort of specializing in the, the CEO toolkit. You know, that aren't they just specializing in the same way as, let's say, a scientist specializes in scientific skills? Are they not just specializing in like the CEO playbook, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. I, I had an inkling of this thought in the back of my head that the language here is potentially very misleading. I think it's worth exploring maybe some of the characteristics of what we mean by generalist in that case. One thing I found really interesting about all those examples, you know, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, is they're incredibly their skills and their knowledge and their ability to operate in different domains and new problem spaces is incredibly transferable, right? You know, Bill Gates, yes, he started off, you know, fairly technical, worked at a hedge fund, started Amazon, an online bookstore. Then they spun out AWS, which is, you know, totally new business running data centers. On the side, he founded Blue Origin, a space company. Elon's obviously started, you know, Tesla, SpaceX. He's got the boring company, you know, a ton of other things. Bill Gates as well, you know, he, he wrapped up his career and now he's gone very, very deep on, you know, issues of world poverty and, you know, world economic disease. Their, their ability to move between different problem spaces is, I think, one of the things which makes them really strong generalists. Whereas you might take a you know, specialist or, or a typical specialist and they're typically unable to move outside of their domain or field. Yeah, those are great observations. There are three things that come to mind here. I don't want to derail this conversation too much, but three things as we were talking about these individuals that I think we should be wary of as we go through this. The first is that a lot of these people did start off as specialists in a particular domain and then branched out. And it does make me wonder, is, is this more of a sequencing question than just a what should I do question? Is it, you know, do you have to earn the right to play by first specializing and dominating a particular area before generalizing into the sort of the areas that they that they've all generalized into that that's maybe one question the second is whether you know looking at these top of the top sort of people on the wealth list 
is even sufficiently representative of anything because the, the, these could just be like the mega prodigies of, of the world. And um, of course, they're going to be doing lots of things because they are capable of doing lots of things. And so for, the, for like the average person or for most people, does, does the same rule apply? Should we think about that? And the last thing is whether actually, again, because we're looking at the people who are sort of like the, the top of the top of the rich list, is this kind of like a market sizing thing where if, if they were specializing, do they not just saturate the full market of whatever that skill set affords? And to, to grow more, to gain more wealth, to do more things, you have to become a generalist just because of, I guess, the available universe of resources out there. Whereas, you know, for most people specializing, you kind of never hit that threshold. And so you can have a very successful career without being forced to find other avenues in a, in a sort of different domains. Don't, I don't know the answer to those things, but I think um, it's sort of one, one set of things to keep in mind when we're, when we're benchmarking the, the whole world against the Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezos of the world. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. I think it's a very common mistake as well to not realize how much of an outlier these guys are. And probably also the fact that you, you don't want to replicate their lifestyles or the vast majority of people don't want to end up where they are. Yeah, yeah, this, this could certainly be a case of like over-optimizing for, for something. But nevertheless, we, we, we have constrained ourselves to this domain of sort of career performance, career success, and so on to get a grasp of this question. So I think, I think there is learning to take from them. I guess the, the question though is, you know, what, what does being a generalist even really mean in that, in that case? You know, again, we've talked about them being general in the sense of operating across lots of different sort of subject matter areas. But we've said, you know, maybe that's specializing in the CEO toolkit. So what, what, what are your thoughts here? How, how can we break the, the idea of generalist versus specialist uh, down? Like, is, there, is there a spectrum of things here? What, what really matters? Yeah, yeah, I think there's definitely a spectrum. And spectrum itself kind of implies like a one-dimensional, either left or right. But in fact, it, it's probably many, many dimensional. But I think there are a few key factors which you would measure against on the spectrum. So the first one is how high leverage is the skill or this knowledge? So by that, I mean, how many types of problems can this be applied to? You know, if I'm a basketball player and I get really good at, you know, shooting, then that's extremely narrowly confined. You know, the, the only other context in which that might be useful is, I don't know, throwing garbage into bins. There's, there's very, very few problems where I could take that. But something like, I don't know, influencing people, useful in a management context, in a, you know, bargaining context, in a sales role, useful across almost any job where you're interacting with people, even outside of your job where you necessarily do have to interact with people as well. And I think the question of how many types of problems can this be applied to is useful in a couple of different ways. So first of all, it, it touches back on that transferability point, right? If the world changes, if I move somewhere else in the world, whether that's a job, a country, a, a profession, I can take some of that knowledge with me and still be able to apply it. But then separately, it also allows you to continue building on that knowledge, compounding on it over time, because you're applying it in so many different contexts and places, and you're getting better at it each time you apply it. Whereas, you know, if you look at the career of a professional athlete, you kind of have to go to the gym and, you know, shoot hoops every single day and get really, really good at that skill. And then one day you're not going to do that anymore. You know, your, your knees are going to be gone by the time you're 35. And for the next 50-ish years of your life, you kind of have to start from scratch. You can't go back and compound and build on that skill of shooting anymore, apart from, you know, maybe if you go coach 
Yeah, I think it's a great framing. This question of, of high leverage, it's really important in any, in any context where you're making like an allocation decision. And when it's allocating your, your time and energy, I think it's in particularly important. Um, and, and certainly the, the combination of those first two factors you mentioned, you know, first being how many problem spaces does this apply to, but then separately or, sort of in, or in a related way, how many domains does that give you access to? I think the combination is important. You know, problem spaces can't be taken as the only thing because there are lots of areas in which there are so many problems you, you would never be able to learn them all and they still are constrained within a domain. You know, one from personal experience here would be, you know, in my past like academic sort of domain doing PhD in maths, you could solve maths problems for an entire lifetime. And there are lots of different mathematical techniques to apply to particular problem areas, but they're not always transferable cross domain. And to take them into like a, a business context, very often you can't. And so I think having that lens is, is really important for finding this leverage. And it actually also resonates with my personal experience now. Currently, I work as head of operations for a clinical AI company. And that means I need to work with many different domains. I have to work with AI engineers, software engineers radiologists, pathologists, salespeople, all these things. And I'd never worked before in any of those sectors before, but I had worked in other companies as a consultant or within startups. And I found that these skills have been really, really transferable, even though it's a very different industry context. And so the functions are different from what I've experienced before. The skill set and the approach has been really transferable. And that's, that's been a huge help. So I would, I would definitely consider that sort of in this high leverage category that you've mentioned. And you know, it did certainly resonates as a concept. Yeah, exactly. If you, I mean, a, another way to frame that is, you know, how many PhD physicists are there in the world who've also gone and done startup work? And then if I were a clinical AI company, you know, failing you ha also having a medical degree, uh, but somebody fairly scientific, analytical, mathematical, also with that commercial experience is actually fairly rare. And, you know, supply demand, the higher the demand is for that you know, combination of skill sets and the rarer the suppliers, which inevitably it will be because how many people are going to take that very unique path through life, it gives you the ability to go and earn those outsized returns. It's actually a really great point. And it actually points to a misconception that I think I encounter fairly often, sort of among my friend circles, where people, I think they very often are in this mindset that you need to build a strongly specialized skill set in order to be valuable to the market or in many contexts. As, as early as yesterday, I was having a, a walk in a conversation with someone who's considering making a career change and they currently work in the retail space and they, you know, they like the space, but they're, they're looking at branching out, learning other things. And they're really worried that if they do that, it'll look like they don't have any sort of particular domain knowledge and their sort of future prospects will be limited. And it was so interesting from, from my perspective, the, the, my gut reaction says it's the exact opposite, you know, looking for people who have broad skill sets, who can do a lot of different things. It proves that they're adaptable. It proves that they've got some risk appetite. It's a very attractive type of profile. But from, from this person's perspective, who's who spent more time, I guess, in corporate environments, they actually see this as a negative. They see this as somebody who doesn't have any domain expertise and therefore is not particularly differentiated against others. And so I, th I think this is a, this is a, a huge misconception that, that's pretty pervasive and potentially quite valuable to break, to break out of and sort of reflect on one's experiences a bit differently. Yeah, I think, I think that touches on a couple of really good questions, which is, you know, understanding that, you know, you want to build a base of high leverage knowledge called conceptually that makes sense. Then which knowledge and skills should I actually go out and 
builds, right? How do I determine in my particular context, what is high leverage? And then how deep do I actually need to go on them, right? What's the 80% here? Because, you know, you, you chatting to your friend and saying, Hey, you know, maybe you've, you've, you've hit the 80%, what matters in retail. Now you're good to go off and do something else. How do they actually determine, you know, what another six months in retail is actually where, you know, I'm going to hit diminishing returns on my learning or it might be another three years or five years. And then finally, you know, taking the right balance of different skills and the right depth on each of them, what's the best way for them to go leverage all of that into whether it's a job, starting a company, consulting, advising, whatever it might be. Yeah, I think that, I think that's a, I think that's a good that's a good framing. And maybe before we jump into it, just to to highlight a few other sort of misconceptions or concepts that I think are relevant to have in mind as as one goes through this assessment. You know, you've got to make sure when you're making a decision, let's say on what skills to learn, that you're informed by the right data, or at least that you're interpreting the data you see in the world properly. And something that I think gets confused here is this problem of sampling bias. When you look out the world at, at the world, in most domains, what you're seeing is examples of very successful specialists. So yeah, pick a domain, again, music. You're seeing, if you look on Spotify, you look on MTV, whatever it is, you're seeing examples of people who have really, really made it. And then you ask, what have they done? And uh, most of them have sort of chosen their domain early on in life and really specialized. But what you're not seeing is the sort of graveyard of fail, the churn specialists who, who never got to that point. And so I guess in this in this context, if we were to say, okay, what skills should I learn? You kind of look up the success list, you see hyper-specialist in particular areas. You're drawing a, a, a conclusion that's based on a, a huge sampling bias. And that's probably not the right way to identify the right skills to learn because only a few people succeed. And if you were to take, if you were somehow to run the randomized control trial and do an experiment over, over skill sets and performance, it's likely not to be those those skills. So I think that that one is is quite important to have in mind here. And the other one is a concept, I think I mentioned it earlier from sort of investment theory. So in modern portfolio theory, there is the, the concept of an optimal portfolio, where when you make investments, you're trying to optimize risk reward. And if you have a portfolio that gets you a certain expected reward for a lower level of risk than you're currently on, you you need to take it. <laughs> you should you're obliged to take it. And the the issue here is, or the or sort of like the, the the way to often do this is to diversify your portfolio in an intelligent way. So you can, without losing much upside, you can lower the risk significantly. You make yourself less fragile. And I think that that again applies here. You know, one thing you could do is just to look at the set of skills that are out there in abstract, unrelated to one another, and you could sort of like snipe specific skills that you see out in the market and kind of build those. But if you're thinking, okay, what is my portfolio view of my knowledge and what is the most high yield portfolio? It's not necessarily a, a list of like skill A, skill B, skill C optimized to a particular level. You do have to consider the ensemble. You have to consider them together and how they complement one another. And that sort of the right mix of diversification that gives you the best like risk reward profile. So I, let's let's take those two sort of concepts through as as we look at the the skills that we think are sort of sufficiently high leverage to to gain. Yeah, I, I've never actually thought about the investment theory lens on this, but I, I think it makes a ton of sense to to give an example that makes that more concrete. You know, if you're if you're running a a portfolio, then one way you might reduce risk is reducing the correlation between you know some of the assets which you have. So. You might want to invest in different countries or different sectors 
you know, if, if Asia is booming at the moment, then, you know, a lot of the risk and reward there is correlated. And so you might be able to find a different country, you know, maybe Africa is growing equally fast, maybe a bit more risky, but by moving some of your investment over there, you can keep a similar kind of expected return while lowering your total risk, especially in the case that something bad happens in Asia and you lose some of your return there. And so, you know, a, a career translation of that might be, what's my, what's my backup? You know, well, let's say I, I do go specialize, you know, what, what can I fall back on where I know that even though I've taken this path, I've also picked up a fairly generalist skill set, and I can reposition myself in a way where I'm not losing earning capacity completely. Yeah, yeah, spot spot on. I mean, you you want to minimize that downside risk. One another career example in the sort of learning to code question you asked. Yeah, I'm sure I learned to code. Yeah, one thing you could do is you could become an absolute gun at like machine code and C plus plus and in several other languages and know them down to the absolute you know, details across all the lang- all the different programming languages and you know, great. But as soon as you move into a context where you don't need to code directly, you're potentially not well positioned versus somebody else who maybe learns one language really well, maybe learns like the, the principles behind coding really well, but then can manage a software team using a different language or something like that. So I think, I think this, this sort of way of thinking of diversifying a skill set applies applies there as well. I think I think it's also important to take then a future looking lens because you can optimize for today. You can look out into the world you see around you today and you say, hey, what is the optimal skill set? Can Google search people, whatever it is you want. But you have to remember that that, that the world changes and that's that's a snapshot of what's happening right right here, right now. But 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 things might look very different in the future. Co- coding might be a good example as well. You know, clearly it's useful, it's super important. There are great specialists doing many important things, but given advances in, let's say, generative AI, being really great at software development may look different in five years from now or 10 years from now. Um, you know, it might be more important to be able to think critically and, you know, identify the right project plans, recognize good code, run robust testing, whatever it may be, uh, versus being amazing at coding yourself at the very low level. Even though today that is the most valuable thing that you could do in five years' time, that might not be the case. So, sort of building in that future proofing could could be a could be a valuable approach to building that diversified skill portfolio. Yeah, I mean, so how do you think about future proofing? One way you could do it is what are the things which we believe about the world today, which will never change, or which are very very unlikely to change, and you know they've been valuable for a thousand years, and they'll probably be valuable for another, you know, at least the duration of my lifetime. Off the top of my head, you've got people, you know, being able to work with people, influence people. That's, you know, that's been valuable for eternity, at least as long as humans have been around. I think the ability to think abstractly and break down problems into subcomponents and figure out how to prioritize them and then go after them. Well, one of the most obvious examples of a high leverage skill that's applicable in a lot of contexts is counting, right? Can you imagine what life was like before you could count stuff? And it's one of those skills which is so deeply internalized in most people we know today that you have so many other concepts and ideas and skills and knowledge built on top of it that you don't even realize how fundamental it is. But what are the things that are similar to counting? which allow you, they, they give you a really good base to build other skills on top of. Do any, any come to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, those are fantastic examples. And, and you're right, that's a, that's a really good way to think about it. You know, this, if things have been relevant for thousands of years, 
I think that's a good indication that they will probably remain relevant for, you know, at least several more. One, one comes to mind, you know, as you mentioned, counting and abstraction, there is, those are sort of like specific skill sets in a sense, but there is also this one sort of one layer higher, which is the meta skill of gaining those skills of, of learning to learn, of learning to be flexible and adaptable. And I think it, it, when faced with an uncertain future and, you know, you don't really know exactly what the future will hold, positioning yourselves to be able to, to be able to adapt to many different futures, I think is a valuable thing. And so practically what this might look like is just the attitude of lifelong learning of, of so keeping your finger on the pulse of being able to acquire skills and apply them quite quickly. You know, this, this could, this could be anything from sort of reading widely, you know, you don't know what's going to be useful. So let's be, let's make yourself adaptable to be able to read widely and learn widely all the way through to just putting yourself in, you know, getting yourself used to change, putting yourself in different environments that make you uncomfortable. So that you learn, okay, how, how does how does this thing, how do how do I operate in a context of uncertainty of change, so that I can learn to adapt? It's sort of like the meta skill of of some of those those skills you mentioned. So th- those those are the ones that came, came to mind for me. Yeah, the the meta learning is a really good point. In fact, potentially the most important point here. Yeah, it could be. It, it could be. I guess the, again, the one issue here is because you don't know when the change is going to come or how much change is going to come, there is also the risk of sort of over-preparing for change that never comes and then missing the arbitrage, right? Like one thing you could do investment theory again, for example, is just invest across everything. So it's not the optimal portfolio. It's not the most, it's not the right way to diversify your portfolio. But if you if you really assume that you don't know anything about the future and you can't put any estimate on on risk, you know, that's, that's one thing you could do. And, you know, you might, you might miss the arbitrage. You might miss the, the apples coming out of nowhere and the Googles of the world. And you do miss the boat. So there, there is a balance to play for sure. But I think you're, you're right in general that meta learning uh, is, is probably the highest leverage thing that you, you can have in your toolkit, at, at least in my experience. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, you, you don't want to become the guy who gets so good at speed reading in, in pursuit of, you know, one day when the right books come out and the right, you know, when AI blows up or crypto blows up, I'm going to be able to read all those books so quickly and get ahead of everyone. But in the end, you just end up being the best speed reader in the world. Yeah. So that, that point makes sense. Yeah, no, for sure. Maybe, maybe it's worth then thinking what are those sort of domains of knowledge? Like you can, can you carve it up in a, in a way that is a bit more sort of practicable? I guess. Does anything come to mind? How how would you carve up those sort of knowledge or skill domains? I think there's a there's a really concrete example which most people go through when you know you go to school, you get a job, and in most jobs, I think there are probably three buckets of knowledge. So you've got, I guess, at the most granular level, level skill specific knowledge, right? You know, you get you get hired as an accountant, maybe, and your job is you know, looks through these financial statements, P&Ls, whatever, and come to some conclusions, provide some advice. And that's pretty good. It's, it's a specific problem. It's transferable. You can go to another accounting firm. You might even be able to go to a business and you know, help them do their accounts. Then there's, you know, domain-specific knowledge. Uh, and that's maybe in this context, you know, I'm an accountant in Australia or even a specific state in Australia, New South Wales. And there's a bunch of extra knowledge I need to have, which is kind of domain specific. It's the regulation that's local, the local tax law, the the way businesses typically operate here, the common, you know, workarounds and ways to deal with them and advice and all of that. And then you've got the top level, which is company specific knowledge. And that's, you know, maybe I work in a giant corporate and 
the way we do particular processes or the people I need to impress to get promoted or, you know, just the way I play the company and the political game. And you can kind of see as you go through these, they get less and less transferable and more and more specific. And there's nothing really wrong with any of them. If I want to play the game of climbing the corporate ladder and staying at the same company for 20 years, then that's great. I should get really, really good at the skill level, the domain level, and the company level. But what you're losing there is adaptability, transferability. You're, you're in some sense then specializing both at the domain level, in this case, you know, geography, and then at the company level, right? The, if you've been at a company for 20 or 30 years, at least in my experience, at least half of your value is the fact that you've been there for that long. You know all of the things that happened before. You've got good relationships through the organization. And all of this gets amplified the bigger the company is, right? So, you know, if you're working at a tiny startup, there's very little company-specific knowledge, which really matters. If you're working at a you know, million-person company, then a lot of what you're doing is really you know, related to your ability to navigate that organization, the people within it, the fact that, you know, hey, eight years ago, we tried that thing. It didn't work because of this. Maybe if we did it again, we'd do it this way. Or, you know, that idea was, wasn't good at that time. It's going to be good when this thing in the future happens. When this AI thing happens, you know, I need to connect with this team in India and this team in the US and this team in China, and then we can make that thing happen. So I think you can also specialize down across your know, domain levels, company levels, not just skills. And it's worth thinking about all of those when you're deciding how you want to play that game. Yeah, agreed. As you were, as you were talking about the sort of like company one specifically and moving your way up in a company and becoming valuable just because of your, I guess, your tenure and your domain knowledge. That's definitely something I've seen a lot as a, as a consultant. And I've seen sort of a lot of insidious effects of that where people deliberately, for example, don't document things or they, they don't sort of automate processes because they know that the, the fact that they understand how they work adds as personal value within the company. So the company gets a lot worse because all individuals are incentivized to just keep things in their heads and therefore maintain value. They're pretty insidious, but, but yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great way to break down. Um, I might push back a little bit on one point though, because it seems like the framing that we've gone through makes it seem potentially like, you know, company and domain specific knowledge is, is necessarily a lot less valuable than sort of skills-based transferable knowledge. And I think like often that's true, but often as well, sort of specific knowledge is, is really important in, especially in the short run. Like I can tell you, there is nothing worse than entering a, like a, a meeting with a consultant who comes and tells you about your company and they're talking big high-level consultant talk and frameworks and, and it's really detached from the actual understanding of what's happening day to day or any topic knowledge. So you, you definitely need a blend and especially in the short run where you, you want to find those sort of like points of, of arbitrage to sort of your way up. I think that's important. Another example of company specific stuff is individual relationships. So it's one thing to just be a good relationship person and understand how to work well with people, but also individual relationships with, you know, the person on your team or your, your manager or your direct reports, those do matter. And maybe over 20 years it's, it's not as clear how much an individual relationship matters, but certainly for the next couple months, the person you're working with, it, it, it's super important. And so while, while I do think these are, these are three excellent lenses, some, some mix of, of all three is probably needed in most cases. So the, the question then becomes across these, across these three different domains, how deep does one go in any one of them? How, how, does, how does one make the call? How far to invest 
in one? Um, and then when is it time to sort of move on from a particular set of learnings and learn something new? Yeah, essentially, yeah, how do we divide up our time and our effort between, in this example, skill, company, and domain level? I think that's a really good point. My gut off the top of my head says you want to think about this as, like you said, you, you want to be able to compound over a long period of time and do the stuff that has highest leverage and probably most of your effort should go there while making sure you pick up the you know, most valuable 80% with a minimum amount of effort from the other le lower leverage buckets. I think the consultant example is really good. Another example is, you know, I, I could start a, a business in a random country and do extremely well and go and try and start the business in a totally new country. But it's going to be very hard for me to do that, especially with a big difference between countries. If I'm starting in Sweden and going to India, then without the right specific local knowledge of, you know, how to bribe the right people and how to, you know, operate legally and also build a team and a network, it's almost impossible for me to go launch in that new country. And so, yeah, you're right. The, the specific knowledge is definitely very important. And like you said, probably more so in the short term. Yeah, that, that, fi that final example sort of not just resonates, but pains me because I've made that mistake <laughs> with uh, with the two companies back when I went to the UK and basically copied our website from one country, trying to launch it exactly the same way with a couple word tweaks in the other. And <laughs> it was a bit painful. It was a little bit of a flop at the beginning and it took us a long a long time to sort of sort of bring, pull ourselves together and fix it. So you're, 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 certainly, you're certainly right at that point. Yeah, I think this one comes down to the the spectrum again like well what does becoming a specialist in a generalist skill look like and how deep down that path do do we want to go yeah I, th I thought about this one a bit and i think there are two things that come to mind to look at the first one it's pretty basic it's like it's as you said like kind of understanding where your return on effort maxes out and so i guess you could think of it as looking at it as a yield curve against any particular skill set so every day you're making a decision on how much time and energy to invest in gaining new knowledge or new skills. And the question then is along that journey, at what point do you hit sufficient sort of yield that you start hitting diminishing returns and it makes, and sort of the opportunity cost of not allocating that time to something else becomes, becomes too high. And I don't think the answer will, will always be obvious here, but it's, it's a helpful thought exercise. So for, for example, you know, suppose that you were really interested in making money through investments. One thing you could do is learn everything there is about how investments work all the way down to, you know, how a clearinghouse works at the exchange and, you know, how individuals' accounts are still stored on databases. But clearly, like, that stuff is not needed. Even though it falls in the domain of investments, that stuff is not where the yield is, you know. It, potentially for most people, it's about you know, learning, learning about ETFs, a bit of a portfolio theory. And then moving on, and then you, you can you can do that. So there is a point at going any skills where I think you can say, okay, I'm hitting diminishing returns here, and and it's time to move on. The second point is I don't know, maybe this is even the more the more relevant point. Um, for, for a lot of skills, you kind of hit a threshold at at some at some point where, having gotten there, you're now able to outsource this effectively or delegate effectively. So an example here might be. Again, in the software engineering context, if you know no software engineering, you're lost. You can't do anything. If you know like a ton of software engineering, you could code things yourself. But there is a point much earlier on where you know just enough to hire a contractor and manage them properly or, or manage a team. And you'll get actually much more leverage from that, from stopping early and, and letting someone else do it and sort of effectively managing them. 
then you would have got from being an absolute gun software engineer able to code everything yourself. So maybe, maybe that's the that's sort of the, the real like OG move is figuring out at what point do I hit this 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 sort of capability to be able to delegate and outsource effectively. And I, and I suspect that that often comes much, much earlier on in the learning curve. So not even 80, 20, maybe, maybe even like 90, 10, 10% of the work is, is enough to then manage somebody else to do it. What, what, are, your, what are your thoughts on, on those two lenses? Yeah, 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 I love the second one. It's a super clear heuristic, which you can kind of keep in mind and actually tests very quickly of, hey, when I'm delegating this to that person, am I covering enough detail? Do I have gaps in my own mind on, you know, how long will this take them? How much effort is it? What are the trade-offs between different decisions? That That's usually what it comes down to. Uh, I will say, I don't know if you've heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's this idea that I think the most famous one is 90% of drivers think that they're above average, which obviously doesn't work because some of those people have to be below the average. But there's a there's a more kind of drawn out version of this. There's a graph somewhere which shows a confidence versus knowledge graph. And I think what happens is, you know, at the beginning, people learn a new skill. They go up to ignorant, but high confidence. So right at the very beginning, you're learning very quickly. You feel like you've uncovered all this knowledge. It's like, ah, I'm an expert. But in fact, you're actually at the peak of your confidence and still very, very ignorant. And then after that, you fall down the hill. You uncover a bit more knowledge, realize how deep the rabbit hole goes, and you hit a little trough where you're extremely low confidence, but it probably somewhat aligns with your knowledge. And then over time, you gradually build up more and more knowledge and confidence to get there. And so in this context, I will say the very easy trap to fall into is thinking you're ready to delegate and you understand enough of the space way earlier than you are. Or, or thinking you're ready to go publicly and to give advice on a podcast about this stuff. <laughs> where, 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 where do you think we? Where do you think we are on this on this confidence and capability curve? <laughs> I think we'll we'll have to let the listeners tell us about that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I think that I think that's right. I think that's the that's sort of like the cut through lens here is you know how how does one solve against that? I mean, getting other people to sense check and calibrate you probably is the best way. Like I know we've been sending around things to listeners asking for feedback. A lot of it has been good. Not all of it has been good. And that is sort of very helpful calibration. And I think with the Dunning-Kruger effect, like, as you said, it's, it's the same thing, you know, and with the knowledge that you are probably going to fall victim to these sorts of biases, getting other people to sense check you might be, might be the way out. And, and potentially, and we talked about high leverage skills, potentially one of the, the highest leverage things you can do is, is very early on getting aware of all these biases and how to protect yourself against them and calibrate yourself uh, to to not fall victim to them, that might be one of the upstream things that that is sort of makes all the downstream high leverage knowledge gaining possible. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think building an internal intuition for when do I actually understand something and when do I just feel like I understand it is extremely powerful. And yeah, to your point, I think the worst feedback we got was on the episodes which we recorded where we had very little personal relevance or domain expertise on the topic. You know, should I should I build a nuclear bunker in an apocalypse? Was was probably one where we didn't get great feedback, and I guess lines up with this. You know, we we went off and just did a bit of research, but where neither of us are preppers or have any real apocalypse living or survival experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, it, you can you can feel it. I think uh, the the sort of Dunning Kruger calibration. We definitely fell victim to it now, but having interpreted that feedback and looking back on it, I think we're now better calibrated and 
yeah, that was that was that was certainly a good learning to have. So I guess I guess like pulling up, it, it feels like we're we're both pretty convinced that the right approach to being a generalist is is probably in most cases the more sort of effective and and robust way of of kind of approaching this career question. And we've got several good sort of frameworks or heuristics for figuring out what skills to focus on, how deep to go, when to move on. I guess the next question is if you've got, gotten all that stuff right, you know, you've you've said, I'm going to like optimize my portfolio of skills and capabilities in this particular way. I'm going to allocate my time in such a way that I, you know, I get the high yield stuff up front, get leverage and then move on. All those good things. Once once armed with this this knowledge, I guess the next question is like, what do you what do you do? How do you how do you get the most out of out of this out of this learning? So I think I've built a intuition, I guess, somewhat carrot stick guilt approach to always try to be moving towards a higher leverage task. I really enjoy getting myself out of the weeds, moving to you know, a position where I can delegate, hire someone, you know, not not have to do that task myself. In fact, not even understand it or know about it a lot of the time. But then on the flip side, there is part of me that loves doing those things, right? I mentioned I enjoy programming before. I love, you know, going deep, understanding them, learning the tools. Uh, But I I tend to feel guilty very quickly whenever I'm doing those for too long because I know I've got an opportunity cost on my time. And so there's a bit of an inherent tension here between, you know, what is best for Korea and, you know, what's going to give me the best, you know, theoretical outcome for for the task versus maybe what do I enjoy doing the most? Although they're, they're both very enjoyable for me. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, mean, I think even then, like, you know, we've, uh, the, content, the conversation we've had has been constrained to more of the career-focused question, but you could remove that constraint and think about the like, what, what concepts that we've talked through, which of those would still apply. And, you know, if you do take that broader lens of, you know, optimizing for what is it? Entire life satisfaction. I think it will include a lot of other things. It might include some um, recreational programming or whatever it may be in your case. But I think a lot of those fra- the, the framing still applies, right? You still have to make a time investment decision, an effort investment decision to maximize some sort of risk-adjusted return on the other end. And you know, maybe that does mean that you you do like spend time coding for fun because it, it, you find it that fulfilling. But you, you certainly won't spend time doing a lot of other things just for fun because you know that in the long run they won't maximize that thing you're trying to maximize yeah it's, it's just zooming out and saying you know we've, we've constrained it to earning output here but maybe maybe there are other lenses where you constrain it to lifetime satisfaction yeah yeah exactly so from a career point of view then it sounds like generalist is a no-brainer is that's probably your take as well yeah, I think I think in most cases, or at least the right type of generalist, I think there are there are certain exceptions. And I mean, one of one of the the user the listener feedback I got was we need some disclaimers at the at the beginning. <laughs> and so maybe I'll say them now. Like we, this is not wealth investment advice. This is not legal advice. This is not medical advice. This is not relationship <laughs> advice. Like all those good things. You know, there are going to be exceptions to, to everything we say. In this case, for sure. I mean. Um, there are definitely specialists who will be much more fulfilled. They're people who really feel like they're born to do certain things. The very best musicians, for example, who want to do nothing other than play music all day. You know, of course, we're, we're not suggesting that those people shouldn't do that. And in particular, people who are natural born prodigies in certain domains who really do have that potential to, I don't know, easily, I would say, get to that top 0.1 or 0.1%. I mean, they're they're very likely to have absolutely phenomenal 
sort of returns, I guess, by focusing and building on those on those skill sets. But I think in general, for for like most people, people who are a bit uncertain, who don't fall into those categories, I, I agree with you. It's it's a no brainer to focus on building a, a wider, sort of more robust portfolio of of skills and knowledge versus over specializing in a domain. The maths just doesn't lie. Yeah, definitely. I wonder who you think if we just take the life satisfaction happiness lens. I mean, and we we go back to Elon and Jeff and Bill Gates. I think those guys definitely lived very stressful, probably not extremely happy lives. But again, if you if you take I don't know the top artists, musicians, they they don't seem to live maybe the the happiest lives either. Who who do you think it is? Like who who do you think's winning here? on the life satisfaction game and are they a specialist or a generalist? Yeah, those two examples you, you mentioned, Elon, Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos in the past tense, I'll remind you that they're, they're still, they're still <laughs> kicking. But yeah, I, I think that they, from what I've heard, you're, you're totally right. You know, they're mega generous, but they've not lived um, insanely sort of happy lives in the traditional sense. It's a tricky question because happiness is hard to measure. But, you know, one, one sort of group of people who are often thought of when you mention the word happiness is like, people living in, in monasteries or monks, living very sort of lives removed from, from the rest of society. Um, one that comes to mind, actually, it's a story I read really recently. It's in the Guardian, Guardian newspaper and it's called, I spent 12 years in a cave. And this is, this is a story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, talk, talk about specialization. This is, this is somebody who was working corporate career in, in London, eventually decided this was not for them. They moved to India, got into a very deep meditation practice, got into... I think it was a sort of like a Buddhist group there. And then the quote here that I've got is, I moved into the cave when I was 33 and was very happy and then goes on to describing this great level of happiness and fulfillment. But what they did was spend 12 years sitting basically alone in a cave, meditating and then leaving out to sort of grow their own vegetables in the garden. I mean, you couldn't get more specialized than that. <laughs> but, but apparently this person is a paragon of, of fulfillment and happiness. So I mean, there's your exception. Don't take, don't take our advice. Go, go live in a cave for 12 years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one, one lens, which I've always had on meditation is the skill they're getting really good at is basically tricking your own brain into releasing happy chemicals. The very vast oversimplification of it, but, and you know, most, most meditation teachers will tell you that the bliss you experience is not the actual purpose of what you're doing, but in some sense, that's a very strong byproduct and the reason a lot of people do that. And if you do take that lens, then maybe everything else is, is a distraction. Maybe there's only one specialist skill which really matters and you just go do that thing to, to bypass everything else and say, hey, how do I just make myself really good at the skill of being happy? Yeah, go go sit in your virtual reality machine all day and... and... Yeah, forget all this career stuff. Just take the shortcut. I think I think that's a I think that's a good good way to end it. I don't want to lead our listeners down too much of a <laughs> a, um, a rabbit hole, a philosophical <laughs> rabbit hole. But um, yeah, that was uh, that was fun. I think I learned something. I, think I feel like I learned something. Huh? Yeah, awesome. That's a good one. Let's call it. <laughs>